Thank you, Missy. Beautiful job. I want to make a contract with you. I want you to sing that at my funeral. Don't get your hopes up that I'm not making any kind of an announcement. (laughs) I love that song. I love that song. I'll tell you how I'm treated, though. Katie Weeks, you knew you were going to get it, and today is the day. I've always kidded Katie since she was small, telling her that she was the meanest girl in Valonia. Well, I met her and her mother coming out of the grocery store this week, and she looked at me and said out loud, look, it's the devil himself. (laughs) The man standing in front of her turned and looked at me and said, well, I always wondered what he looked like. I assure you that I am not the devil, but I also assure you I will get even. (laughs) Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. When you share the gospel with someone, it's impossible to know what kind of response you're going to receive. Some people will be polite, but they will be politely uninterested. Some people can even be hostile, but some will listen. And ultimately, some of those who listen will believe. In Acts chapter 19, we see Paul's ministry as it was received in the city of Ephesus. When Paul came to Ephesus, he found a city that was completely in the grip of fear and superstition, and darkness, and demonism. Here, the great temple of Artemis was located, also called the Temple of Diana. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But beneath the exterior beauty of that temple, it was a seat of great immorality and depravity. And the major underlying problem in Ephesus was that it was the center for the practice of magical arts, especially casting of spells on people and things. Now, Paul assaulted this stronghold of evil with the weapons of spiritual warfare. It was from this city that Paul wrote at Corinth, warning, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It was to Ephesus that he wrote from Rome, Saying in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. It seems suggestive that uh, Paul's most complete study of spiritual powers and the battle that Christians have comes from his letter to the church at Ephesus. 
Now, I want you to notice with me four things about the proclamation of the gospel this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that where the gospel is proclaimed, it will always be met with opposition. Verse number 8 says, And he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened, did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude... He departed from them and withdrew the disciples' reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. If one word described the preaching of Paul, it was the word boldly that we see in verse number 8. In fact, this word is used six times in the book of Acts to describe the ministry of Paul. What he did was he brought reasonable proof from the Old Testament scripture to prove that the kingdom, that is the rule and authority of God, was revealed in Jesus Christ. As Paul preached over this three-month period in the, in the synagogue in Ephesus, many were convinced of the truth of the gospel. But it says, but some, not all, but some became more and more <clears throat> opposed to the gospel. Verse 9 reveals that a definite progression is here in this opposition. First, it says they became hardened, hardened to his teaching. The word speaks of a a heart hardened against God. The fact that this, this word is in imperfect tense shows that the hardening was a process, that over the t- over time, the heart became harder and harder and harder which led to making a definite decision not to believe. Paul says of the unbelieving heart in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 that they suppressed the truth. Literally, they held down the truth in unbelief. The outward manifestation of this hardened unbelief was that they began to verbally oppose the gospel by speaking evil of it in public. Historically, whenever you make it clear that salvation has nothing to do with human goodness, it has nothing to do with works, and that it all lies in faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then some are going to respond and others are going to become hardened and disobedient and speak evil against God's way of salvation. And here we have a picture of the spiritual warfare between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. These Jews chose to allow their hearts to become hardened, resulting in disobedience, and then to lie about the truth of God found in Christ. When the opposition became too strong, Paul moved his teaching from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannius. Now, since the word Tyrannius means tyrant, one wonders how he got that name. By his parents? Or was he given that nickname by his students? Now, most sane parents, I said sane, most sane parents don't give their children oddball names. Unless they're Hollywood stars or rock and roll legends. 
I'll give you an example. If you know Frank Zappa, I always liked his children's names. There was Moon Unit, Dave Muffin, Dweezel, that's my favorite, his son Dweezel, and Hamet. I'm not sure how his children liked those names, however. Whatever is the case, this seems to be a lecture hall that was used to teach Greek philosophy. According to extra-biblical sources, it tells us that Paul arranged to rent this lecture hall from 11 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. That would have been the time in Ephesus when everyone was taking a siesta. The heat of the day, they worked early in the morning, they took off in the middle of the afternoon, they came back and worked until 9 o'clock at night or so. So while the others were taking a siesta, Paul went over to the school of Tyrannius and he taught about Christ. These individuals thought enough about what Paul was teaching to go to sit under his teaching for this time five hours a day for at least six days a week for two years. That's fifteen to 1,800 hours of instruction. That's more than most people receive in a three-year seminary degree in studying for the pastorate. Moreover, Paul also mentions in his words to the Ephesians how he went from house to house instructing them in the things of God according to Ephesians 20.20. So perhaps after 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when Tyrannius came back to the lecture hall and took over his lecture hall, then Paul would go from house to house discipling new believers in what it meant to be followers of Jesus Christ. Paul's teachings, according to verse 10, continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It says, now God moved, worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. To prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the message was true, God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, Luke himself is not content to describe these events as mere miracles. He uses an added adjective here that, can, that is often translated unusual or special or singular or remarkable or extraordinary. He didn't regard them as typical even for miracles. Now, the handkerchiefs that are mentioned here are not little white hankies kept in your suit pocket. They're literally, the word literally is sweat. It talks about sweat bands or sweat claws, and it's it's talking about those sweat claws that that Paul would have had with him that he wiped his brow with while he's working in his tent-making enterprise. The aprons that he mentions, of course, are not household kitchen aprons. They are aprons that he used in his, also in his leather working. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around where people were working with skins of animals, but it is extremely stinky. So people came and they would, as Paul turned his back, pick up his 
sweat rags or grab his aprons and they would take it and place it on the individuals who were sick and these individuals would become well. Now the practice of faith healers today who take this passage as their authority to send out special blessed handkerchiefs are way off base. And they should be greeted with the same skepticism that they really deserve. Now notice the second thing. Where the gospel is proclaimed, there will always be an attempt to counterfeit the truth. As always the case, Satan will try to counterfeit the miracles of God. It says in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by, the, by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, for me, that's one of the funnier passages in the New Testament. Seeing the power of Jesus at work, some of these itinerant Jewish exorcists decided that they would add it to the list of their own incantations. The name of Jesus, however, is no charm to be used by whoever wants to use it. As these exorcists are going to learn the hard way. What happens when these Jewish exorcists call on the name of Jesus, I think is quite humorous. This particular demon or demons is not impressed. These demons didn't like to be ordered around by people who were charlatans. And so the demon responds by saying, Jesus I know and Paul I am acquainted with, but who are you? Now there are two different Greek words that are used here. In this verse, the demon says, I know, it is a word that means I know him intimately. I have a deep knowledge of who Jesus is. And Paul I know, and this is another word that says I'm acquainted with him. I know his name. I know who he is. But I don't know who you are. The reaction of the the demons is not at all what these exorcists had expected The demons working through this demonized man attacked the Jewish exorcist. They beat them up rather badly. And if we take it literally, that means he beat up all seven of them and drove them from the house naked and afraid. It should be evident from this verse that the casting out of demons... That is not, is not something that should be taken, undertaken lightly or casually. The fascination seen in some Christian circles with casting out demons is it without biblical support. And it is dangerous. There is no command found in Scripture for believers to attempt to cast out demons. Third, when the gospel is proclaimed, there will always be a conviction of sin. As a result of the shaming of these sons of Shiva, a great conviction of sin fell on the city. According to verse 17, it says, And this became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, 
And fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds, and many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. The word that is used, practiced magic, is used only one other place in the New Testament. <laughs> and interestingly, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, and it's translated busybodies. It means going beyond that which is legitimate. It means doing carefully and with pains that which is, is not worth the trouble and effort. It means to meddle. This is the word that the Holy Spirit uses to describe the involvement of the Ephesian people in the world of magic and sorcery. It was going beyond the limits that God had set. It was meddling, and it was not worth the effort. It promised way more than it would ever deliver. When the power of God prevailed through Paul and the power of magic failed through the sons of Shiva, the Ephesians saw that the magical practices that they were involved in were evil and worthless. And some of them who had professed to be believers but kept on holding on to some of those old practices of visiting mediums and fortune tellers and psychics and playing with tarot cart. It's amazing to consider that even today many believers are still doing the same thing. They're still calling psychic hotlines to consult with Ms. Cleo and they're still buying crystals to place in their homes hoping for power and healing. No matter what you call those practices, whether you call it new age Religion or channeling, it is the same old Satan-inspired lies. And parents need to be very careful of allowing their children to read books about witchcraft and sorcery. The Bible never has one good word to say about witchcraft. Verse 18 says that these individuals openly confessed... I think this may indicate that they not only got right with God concerning their practices, but they revealed the contents of their spells. This is significant because according to the beliefs of those involved in the magical arts, the potency of a spell was bound up in its secrecy. If you divulged what it was, then it became ineffective. They were not only confessing their involvement in Sorcery, but in so doing, they were rendering all their spells powerless. In addition, they publicly collected their magical books and they burned them in the sight of all. That's an interesting thing because, you know, today we might think, well, I got all these books, put them on eBay, like I'll make a lot of money off those, or I have all these idols that I brought back from foreign countries and these. Buddhas that I have, uh, some of them are fairly expensive and worth a lot of money. I put them on eBay and sell them, but the problem is I'm giving that evil influence to someone else. 
It says that they've chosen to destroy them. This is no small thing. 50,000 pieces of silver is a rather large sum of money. If you take one piece of silver as equivalent to a day's pay for an average worker, which is what it was in biblical times, that is roughly 130 years of income. That's a lot of money. It appears that the mighty work of God began when the believers began to clean up their own lives, when they divulged their hidden practices, they confessed what they were doing in private. The scripture came to my mind, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 says, And then the, times, the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. Fourth, when the gospel is proclaimed, there will always be growth in the church. In verse 20, we're told, So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. When the believers began to show changed lives, then the unbelievers around them began to take a second look at their own practices. Spiritual light brought forth through the church. The church, as we know, was designed to be a light to the world. The church was designed where individuals, when they begin to straighten out and clean up their lives and act and live as if God has called men to do, then the world begins to see itself in the light of its own practices. See what's wrong and be freed from those practices that are darkening and blinding them. What would be the result today if the Holy Spirit swept through the church? Certain magazines would be quietly removed from their hiding places and certain kinds of novels would no longer be on our reading list and certain videos and cable channels would no longer be viewed. Sin of every kind would be forsaken. People would ask other people to pray for them and help them to get free from whatever sins were dragging them down. And the altars would be filled with people who were asking for forgiveness. This passage makes it clear the means by which demonic forces seize people. Demons cannot force their way into the lives of any human. They cannot overpower and take possession of any human. They must find a way to trick and deceive that individual into yielding their wills to their influence and power. When we voluntarily give way, then they move in and they take possession. They control our thoughts and they dominate the life. The whole business of astrology and crystals and meditation and spiritual guides are all means by which satanic forces trick a person into opening their minds and yielding their wills to that which is evil. The books on that subject, on those subjects, all suggest that you're about to discover some previously hidden power that few know about. But the reality is, is you are going to open yourself up to demonic influences that have been around since the creation of the world.
Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are still in a battle. There is still a spiritual battle going on in this world between darkness and light. We realize that as your children, we've been called to be children of the light, to walk in the light, to exhibit life, to practice what we believe. Forgive us, Lord, when we failed you. If there is any particular place in our lives that need to be visited, if there's any particular thing that you need to speak to our hearts about, if there's something that we need to forsake, then, Lord, I pray you'd help us this morning. I pray that you'd give us the power to turn to you and find forgiveness. Father, we're grateful that we know that wherever we've been, whatever we've done, you're still there and ready and willing to receive us. That you're our Heavenly Father and that your arms are open wide to receive any who would come. And so, Lord, I pray for those who may have issues in their lives that need to be settled. They may have sin that they need to forsake. I pray for all of us because, in truth, we all have sin in our lives and we need to stay current in getting our sins forgiven and taken care of. Father, there may be one here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal way. They've never truly turned to you and asked to be forgiven and received that forgiveness, knowing that they have been forever forgiven of their sins and they stand cleansed and they have a place in heaven because they've accepted you as their Lord and Savior. If there is one here today that has never done that, then I pray that you'd help them to know they can, that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done on the cross of Calvary to pay for their sin. All they need to do is accept what he has done. Father, I pray for us as believers that we'd be able to apply the truth we've heard today in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.